If you've listened to The Unlovely Truth before, you know how much I love Anne Rule's books. I've got another one of her true crime masterpieces for you today. It's about a man who was convicted of just one murder, but he was linked to at least 18 and suspected in as many as 44. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and today I'm going to bring you another story from the world of true crime, and then I want us to see where it intersects with our faith. I hope you'll join forces with me to answer what I think is every Christian's calling, and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. We'll talk about a practical way that any of us can do that after we dive into today's case. This is Season 3, Episode 42. Our book this week is The I-5 Killer by Anne Rule, and our guest is Tanya Kubo. Tanya is a writer, speaker, social media consultant, and coach. But I had her on today because she's also a mom who's going to share a story with us about what many people see as a minor or even a petty crime. But before we do that, I'm going to tell you the story of Randy Woodfield, a man who started out with petty crimes and worked his way up the ladder to serial killer. Randy grew up in a middle-class family, a lot like mine and probably a lot like yours. He was a star athlete in high school, but he had a dark side as well. Randy was caught exposing himself when he was still just in junior high school. It doesn't seem like he was punished or had any consequences at all and didn't get any treatment. Now, I know some people say indecent exposure and peeping Tom type behaviors are just minor kind of nuisance crimes, but they are huge red flags. They are not just boys will be boys things. When you talk to some of Randy's classmates, looking back, they remembered that in addition to that type of behavior, he liked to, quote unquote, tease animals, whatever that meant. That also doesn't sound very good, and it's another red flag. There were instances where Randy was caught stealing, too, and then more indecent exposure. When he was in college, he had a, I'm using air quotes here, girlfriend who was only 14 years old a giant red flag. Randy continued his athletic success in college, playing football, and he threw himself into his school's Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Campus Crusade for Christ groups. And he also kept exposing himself to terrified women and girls. In August of 1972, he was arrested and convicted this time of indecent exposure. But he just got a suspended sentence And it doesn't really make it clear in the record whether he was ever on probation. Less than a year later, he was arrested and convicted again on that same charge. And this time he was sentenced to serve some time. But somehow he never did. Eight months after that, he was arrested for public indecency, but he only got probation and mandatory counseling, which he never completed. No one checked to see if he was being compliant. In 1974, a lifelong dream of Randy's came true. He was drafted by the Green Bay Packers, but it didn't end well. There were rumors of more incidents of indecent exposure, many more, during training camp, and the team let him go. By 1975, he was robbing and sexually assaulting scores of women, often using a knife to terrify his victims into doing the disgusting things that he asked them to do. Randy was so depraved he even attacked two sisters 
who were 10 and 8 years old. He was arrested once again when he attacked a police decoy. And this time, he went to prison. He actually told the psychologists that he was forced to see that he thought his problems were probably caused by being rejected by a girlfriend. Let's pause right there. Do you know any men that blame their antisocial behaviors on anyone other than themselves? That's one of the biggest red flags of all. Randy learned quickly how he could game the system, and he finally convinced officials that he wasn't a danger to anyone. After he served less than 40% of his sentence, Randy was paroled. Randy Woodfield's crimes spanned hundreds of miles up and down the I-5 highway in Washington, Oregon, and California. That's how he eventually got the nickname, the I-5 Killer. It took authorities from the different jurisdictions quite a while to realize that a number of their sexual assaults and maybe even murders were being committed by the same person. Randy just continued to sexually assault women wherever and whenever he had the opportunity. Even though by now he was well into his 20s, he was drawn to young teenage girls. Now, he did date older women, too, because they could offer him a place to live. One Valentine's Day, he sent flowers to over a dozen women, at least one of whom thought she was his fiance. Randy was arrested again in March of 1981 after he killed Sherry Hull by shooting her three times in the head. Sherry had been cleaning an office building after it was closed with her friend and co-worker Beth Wilmot. Randy tried to kill Beth with one shot to the head, but she survived. Beth had also been raped, but because she was in shock, she couldn't remember that part of the attack. Lab tests told the truth, though. Phone records of calls that Randy had made on his landlord's number tied him to the location of multiple assaults and a few murders. With that and mounds of evidence that officers meticulously collected, he was finally convicted of Sherry Hull's murder. And it was the only one he was ever convicted of. I found it really interesting to learn that the prosecutor in that case was Chris Van Dyke, who is the son of the legendary entertainer Dick Van Dyke. Now, as the years have passed, DNA has linked Randy Woodfield to many more crimes. And he sits in prison in Oregon. And he'll likely never get out because he was sentenced to life plus 90 years with 35 extra years tacked on for sodomy and using a weapon during a sexual assault. But Randy Woodfield continues to insist that he's innocent. Prison hasn't slowed him down much. Randy's gotten married three times and divorced at least twice. He carried on a pen pal type romance with another killer that Ann Rule wrote about, Diane Downs. You may remember her as the woman from Oregon who shot her three children, killing one, all because the man she was seeing didn't want to have kids. We may need to do her story on a future episode. And here's another fun fact. Randy Woodfield actually sued Ann Rule for libel because of this book. His suit was dismissed when the court ruled that he had filed after the statute of limitations had passed. I want all of us to think about all of the criminal behavior Randy Woodfield exhibited before he ever killed anyone. Behavior that a lot of people might dismiss as being somewhat harmless. We're going to talk about how some similar behavior affected our guest today and her family right after this. Hey, I am so excited that my book release is getting closer because I'm pumped for you to have these practical safety tips as well as stories that will encourage you not to live in fear, but in the calling that God has for you. 
and that's to be a person of impact. And now I want to give you a bonus safety tip. You're not going to find this one in the book. Keep your car keys by your bed if you've got a key fob. If you hear someone outside your home, or heaven forbid, trying to break in, set off your car alarm. That'll most likely scare off any would-be intruder, and it'll get your neighbor's attention so someone can call for help. Now let's check in with today's guest. Tanya, I really want to thank you for joining us today. You and I have talked about your story before, but our book today, we talked about a serial killer, and most of us are never going to run into a serial killer. Thank goodness, statistically, just not going to happen. But a lot of us might have a situation similar to yours, or we might know someone. So I just want to start out by you telling me Oh, okay. Story. Well, thank you. I should say thank you for having me first. Uh, so my story is we had somebody who was looking inside my preteen daughter's window. And the way we found out about this was I was actually not home at the time. I was there. I was out with my younger daughter. And so I got a call from my husband. So, you know, some of the story is from his perspective. But he was watching TV and noticed like flashing lights outside, like he could see them through the curtains. And so he went outside to see what was going on. He saw police officers talking to a neighbor and the police officers kind of shoot him inside. And so he was like, okay, well, I'll just go back inside by my own business. But then he noticed that they were kind of moving closer to our house. And so he went back outside and that's when the neighbor had flagged him over to let him know that he had seen, he'd caught this man hiding behind a tree that was between our houses. And he had stacked up, I think you call them cinder blocks, stacked up cinder blocks to reach where my daughter's window was. He had tried to run him off. He was like, hey, you don't belong there. Go. Um, The man was drinking and he said, you know, just leave me alone. I'm just drinking. I want to be left alone. He was like, yeah, well, you can't drink there, so you need to go. And it wasn't until the neighbor came out with a gun and said, if you don't leave now, I'm going to call the police, that thing escalated. And so then he ended up calling the police. But the police kept trying to get my husband to go away because from the police perspective, we were not victims here because we did not see the incident ourselves. So, right, my husband did not see him looking in our daughter's window. The neighbor saw it. The neighbor is the person who encountered the man and the neighbor is the person who called it in. So we were not considered anything but looky-loos, which as you can imagine, angered me as a mom and my husband as a dad, right? To the very core of our being. Of course. So, so, you know, my husband, of course, he couldn't get any information from the police. The police would not talk to him. And, you know, they had arrested the man. By the time he had gotten out there, the man was already in the back of the vehicle. So my husband didn't really get a good look at him. But my husband was talking to the neighbor about it. So, you know, he took a picture of the the police officer's card because the neighbor had had that. And really, like, we ended up having to go do our own Google searching to figure out, okay, so, you know, what, what did police officers tell the neighbor? What did the neighbor know? Like, who was this person? Because... The police officers had made it seem like, oh, it was just, you know, a homeless man who was cold and he was just looking for some shelter. 
Uh, and that wasn't actually what we found. What we found is this man had been on probation. He was released early from jail. He had been on probation for just a few weeks. He had been in jail or in prison for sexual misconduct and for sex with an underage youth. So we were like, oh, okay. And then we looked and he had some prior, you know, some prior felonies for domestic violence. So, you know, so abuse, sexual misconduct, all those things. And nobody was saying this to us. And of course, by the time I get home, I I am in a fit. A fit and a half, I'll have you know. Because I have just decided, right? We are lighting up the outside of our house like the 4th of July. I'm putting all the cameras in and all the lighting and all the things. And I have simmered down significantly since then. But what, what galled me to no end, right, is being treated as if you don't count. That was really hard for me feeling like my daughter didn't count, right? Because from the police officer's perspective, she didn't see anything. So she wasn't a victim in this, and which is true, right? She didn't see anything. She didn't know anything outside of what she heard adults talking about. But when he was taken into custody, they made no record of the fact that he was looking into a little girl's window. Like they made no record of the parole violations. You know, he was unregistered as oh, a sex gosh. offender and none of that had happened. And so when we were trying to find out more information, because he wasn't booked with accurate information, we couldn't access it. And so the only reason we found out half of what we know at this point is because my husband has a personal relationship with a probation officer. And he called a probation officer and he said, hey, this weird thing happened at my house and I'm really not happy about it, but I don't know who to complain to because I don't see a record of this, you know, through the police department online. And that man was like, oh, your wife knows people, doesn't she? And my husband said, what do you mean? <laughs> He's like, because I've been hearing about this because your wife has been talking to some people. And my husband's like, she's a little mad by being told that she doesn't matter in this situation. And so he, he explained, you know, his perspective. He's like, well, you have to understand it was late at night. It was this. He didn't really hurt anybody. Da, 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 you know, and the jail's overcrowded and all this stuff, right? It's like all, and you know, for them, it's another day at the office. But it's not another day at the office oh, for yeah. me. And our thing, I was like, well, has this, you know, what I need to know as a mom, has he been watching my house? Like, did, was he just trying to look into a window because he wanted to know if he could break in? Did he want to steal something? Or was he watching my house long enough to know whose window he was looking in and what he was trying to do? And I could never get answers to that. I'm grateful my neighbor, because... I think I scared him when I told him all the things I was going to do to my house because he was like, oh my gosh, honey, I'm never going to sleep. So he actually paid to cut down that tree. So there are no trees between our houses anymore. So he paid to do that. He was like, I will make sure nobody can hide. You know, he, he was like, I will split the cost of a fence if you want to extend a fence out. You know, I will help you do all these things if you please don't put spotlights that go into my bedroom window. Um, but he went to court. Like he said, I will press charges. I will go to all the hearings. Because they, if they don't want to involve you, that's fine. I will do everything I can do to make sure that this doesn't happen again. That's amazing. And that's what we need to do more of, looking out for each other. Because I think people will be shocked when they really reflect on the story that you have just told, where it seems very obvious mm -hmm. when you look at the totality of the situation, when you look at this man's history, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to think, he probably knew that was a young mm -hmm. girl's bedroom and he wanted to look into it. Now, whether your daughter knew that at the time or not, she mm -hmm. knows now. 
that's going to affect her. That's affected you, your other child, your husband, your neighbor, probably lots of people in the neighborhood. And so we need to make sure that we are working together to take these things seriously enough. Because as you and I were talking earlier, these things tend to escalate. It's like the dopamine on on the Mm -hmm. video games. You get that little hit. It's fun. It's good. You keep doing it. Then you have to do something that's a little more intense to get that same hit. And that's what we saw in our book. We had a guy that started out exposing himself. And then that wasn't enough. Then he had to sexually assault. Then he had to use a weapon. Then he ended up escalating to murder, which who knows if the perpetrator in your case would have followed that same path. But I don't think we can take that chance to say, ah, he probably Mm -hmm. won't. Well, I agree. And the other thing, if you don't mind, I would like to talk a little bit about neighborhood culture, because what I experienced here, first of all, this was not the first instance of this sort of thing happening in our neighborhood, which I only found out about when I started, you know, because I live my whole life on Facebook pretty much. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to start looking on Facebook. Like if nobody is going to take this seriously, I am going to share my story. Nobody can argue with me about my story, right? And I find out, oh, something similar. This, This man in particular had a very distinctive tattoo, very distinctive, and it was on his face, right? So hard to have any mistaken identity here. So it's like, oh, well, I saw that guy too. But none of the neighbors will talk about it because they're afraid of the neighborhood being viewed as unsafe and it driving down their property values, right? I encountered, and it's like, I live around good people, but, you know, there's good people who believe we do good things. And then there are the things that that are in our heart. And trust me, my heart got very dark on that drive home until I could put (laughs) hands on my daughter and see that she was not harmed. I thought of all sorts of things that as a Christian woman, I would never, ever think I would think. But oh, my my brain went there. But listening to these people, I'm like, you know, I wish, Tanya, you hadn't put that on Facebook because so-and-so's house is for sale. You know, who's going to want to move into this neighborhood? I'm just like, really? Really, is that what this is about? And I don't think they meant that maliciously. I don't even think they fully understood what the words they were saying meant. But that was top of mind. You know, is this going to affect my house price? Or is this going to entice other people with similar behaviors to come and check out our neighborhood? You know, I would argue with these people, though, that putting it out there Banding together, showing people that you've got each other's backs, showing people that you're proactively looking for issues before they become big problems, that is going to make your neighborhood coveted. Well, the thing that I, it's like, okay, so what if we got a reputation as the neighborhood? You don't target that neighborhood because even if you get away with it, all of the people around there will be on the lookout for you. Right. Like you can't hide in that place. I mean, how often do we find out situations where people were able to hide in plain sight because there was a mind your own business culture in that neighborhood? Right. Like, no, don't ask, don't tell. Right. So if you get that, like, just get that reputation that there are no secrets in that neighborhood. So maybe just stay away. I think that's much stronger and much more protective of your home home values and all those other things that homeowners worry about than 
oh my gosh, like we just can't let anybody know that that happened here. I agree 100%. And, you know, we're not talking about becoming a vigilante group. I discourage that tremendously. But what we are talking about is just really doing what the Mm -hmm. Bible says, that we bear one another's burdens. Yes. And that we take responsibility for what happens in our scope. I mean, that's what my neighbor did. Like, he didn't have to do any of the stuff he did, right? He could have said, well, like, I mean, he's just drinking beer outside on the tree. Like, not my people. Like, I don't know those people. I don't care. You know, he was the one who escalated it to like, this doesn't make sense to me. I am, I am going to call the authorities. And then to go to the hearing. Yeah, I don't even know your neighbor, but I want to give him a neighbor of the year award. So please pass that along. I will. I will. Because he, you know, and he was funny because he was just like, please don't move. I like you guys. You guys are nice neighbors. Please don't move over this. And I'm like, oh, you're so cute. Thinking I live the kind of life where I can just sell my house overnight for things. But it definitely, like, this was one situation where I can say it brought us very close together, us and this neighbor. And it drove a wedge between us and other neighbors who just didn't understand why we couldn't keep it quiet. Mm. And another thing I'd love to point out to those folks is that's what criminals want. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you watch the nature shows and the lions and the cheetahs and all the predators, they are trying to separate the herd. They They don't want to take on the whole herd. That's too hard. They won't be met with success. They might even get hurt. So they look for someone that looks weak, they try to get them separated, and that's when they attack. That's a good point. I I don't know that we think about it that way, right? Because I think sometimes we get arrogant. We're humans, right? We have opposable thumbs. We walk on our own power, right? We can, you know, we're so much smarter than the lemming. But when you leave us alone, we are just as defenseless. And I think it's easy to say, oh, well, we'll look out for the the little widow, the elderly widow down the street, because we can see that she's vulnerable. Or, oh, there's a single mom over there. We know that she's got it tough. She needs some help. But we all have things we need help with, whether they're visible or not. And I think in today's society, we just we see such a lack of respect for people's property, for people's personal space, their personal autonomy, and their own personal safety. Yeah. And so as that continues to get worse, I think it's so much more important that we do band together. And at the community level is, I think, where it is most effective. Get to know your neighbors. You know, get to know what cars should be going up and down your street regularly and which ones shouldn't. Um, I've told this story before, but I think it bears repeating. You know, as a private investigator, I do surveillance from time to time. And I'm always shocked that no one comes up to me and says, why are you still here? (laughs) Or can I help you? I like to tell myself it's because I'm good at what I do. And, you know, I try to be as inconspicuous as possible. And I'm a very Mm non-threatening looking person. But still, there are times when I'm like, I would not live in Mm -hmm. this neighborhood. No one has questioned my presence here. 
And well, and I think of, you know, I was in my twenties and I lived, I lived in a, like a condo complex for three years. And what boggles my mind is I knew nobody's name who lived there. And I mean, we had probably wow. 400, 500 units. And I, I was one of the first people to move in. And nope, like I could not tell you a single person's name. I don't think anybody knew me. And when, you know, and that's part of why we chose the neighborhood we chose, right? Because we wanted a place where we were known and people, you know, we knew people, people knew us. You want that community. And I, I have to say nothing feels more lonely than when you find yourself the victim of a crime, whether that's your own perception that you're the victim or other people's perception that you're the victim. You know, for us, like I, I, I was the grouchy lady on the street who was making problems for everybody. And, you know, and I'm grateful for my neighbor. But he, I mean, because he was the only person who was like, you know, you're doing the right thing. And I'm like, am I? Am I, am I doing the right thing? Because they're, they're mad at me. So I like what you were saying, though, about it is a shared responsibility. And it's not as overwhelming when it's a shared responsibility. Yes, that's a huge point. Thank you for bringing that because up. I think, like if it was all on me to make sure, because our, our street's not very big, but to make sure that, you know, the 10 houses are like cared for and there's no strangers and, you know, there's no porch pirates or any of that stuff. I don't have enough hours in the day. But gosh, if I make a point to kind of survey the surroundings every time I come and go and the neighbor on either side of me does the same thing and the neighbors across the street do the same thing, then there's eyes on, on something all the time. And then we all get a sense of things. We all know when something's not quite right, right? You know that, Hey, that neighbor's something must've happened over there because their yard is never not mowed versus when you just have tunnel vision, you're just worried about going from your car to your house, car to your house. And somebody says, what's going on with your neighbor? Like they're, their yard's really overgrown. You're like, oh, I haven't noticed. Huh. I think they used to mow it. I don't know. Maybe somebody new lives there. That's such a great point. And it's something that is so easy. Any of us can do. You don't need any special training, any special skills. You just need to be observant. You need to be willing to talk to your neighbors. And, you know, that's a lesson for me too. I, I can be a little hermit-like. But uh, it's something you said because, you know, a big part of what you do is helping people learn how to be good on social media, how to manage their tribes. And you mentioned being the, the grouchy neighborhood lady. I'm seeing a new hashtag <laughs> trending, you know, hashtag yeah. grouchy neighborhood lady. I'm going to have to use that. Um, but speaking of mm-hmm. all the things you do, the writing, the speaking, the everything, tell us something that, that you've got going on, you're excited about, and let us know how we can Oh my connect. gosh. Well, you, I, I like to say that I'm like fungus. I am everywhere. Um, so, I mean, you Google me and, you know, you just can't, you would pull a hamstring trying to avoid me, I think, on the internet. But you can follow me at Tanya Kubo on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the places. What I'm excited about right now is I'm right now on week two of teaching people how to be a good human on social media. So I I have just this really short four-week program where we talk about how you can get to know people business to business on social media without being a salesy weirdo. Like actually having real life human to human conversations. And so it's funny is because, and you know this, because you are trying to promote your podcast, right? You're trying to grow your podcast. You've got a book coming out. Like you, you need an audience for all those things. 
we get all this training. You, there is no shortage of conference workshops that will tell you what you should post on your Instagram and what do you need a Facebook group? Don't need a Facebook group. Do you do this on Facebook? Do you do that on Instagram? Are you, should you be on TikTok? Should you have a reel, right? They'll tell you all that stuff, but you know what they don't tell you to do? They don't tell you, how do you find people who aren't already following you so they can learn about you, right? They, they just say, oh, post all the things and people yeah. will find you. Well, how? So one of the things that I love to do is I like to be a really good follower. And I didn't realize that being a good follower and building relationships in that way, both with the person whose account you're following, but also the other people who follow the account. Because if you like them, chances are you like the people they attract. I didn't realize that people didn't know how to do that. Like I, it's almost like manners, right? You need to be taught to say thank you when somebody does something nice for you. You need to be taught to say please. Like I didn't know that, right? It's the same thing on social media. So I'm teaching a group of people. There's about 25 of us. And it's like, how do you have these two-way conversations? Because somewhere in the last 10 years on the internet, that normal etiquette and good manners aspect of the social part of social media got lost. Well, you're an awesome person to teach us all how to find it. So thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your story. I will be a grouchy neighborhood lady right there with you. I love it. I want everybody, unless you're a guy, <laughs> to be the grouchy neighborhood lady. Then you can be the, if you're a guy, you can be the get off my Ooh, lawn guy. That, that has a good ring to it. Get off my lawn guy. That's a good hashtag. Yes. Get off my lawn guy. I like get it. off my lawn gal. We can do this. We've started something. Thank Thanks, you Tanya. so much. In the 21st chapter of Exodus, Moses is listing out all the laws that people need so that they'll know how to deal with situations that come up in this broken world that we live together in. You've probably heard Exodus 21, 23 through 25 before. But if there is serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now that sounds pretty bloodthirsty and retaliatory. But when we look a little closer, it might not be meant literally. As I was reading this, I was really struck by the parallelism, which is a common literary device used to give the written word a sense of order and to make your message really resonate with your reader. The repetition of the idea that any punishment given should match the crime, so to speak, cuts both ways. We shouldn't be excessively harsh, but at the same time, criminals need to face consequences. Who's to say if Randy Woodfield would have developed into the serial killer that he did had he gotten both punishment and therapy, maybe, when he was exposing himself as a junior high school student? Now, I know that what makes a killer a killer is a lot more complicated than just that, but it does make you wonder what kind of difference we can make with better interventions for our youth. I've put a link in the show notes to an organization that works hard to educate middle schoolers about sexual violence and how to reduce the number of people that are victimized every single day. Check out what they're doing and see if there are any programs like that near you for schools or for your youth group. If not, find out what you can do to help bring something like it to your community. And you can help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, by sharing this episode, subscribing to the podcast, 
and giving me a five-star rating with a nice review on Apple Podcasts. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neo Cortex and artwork by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.